What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a podcast that deals with issues that usually get swept under the rug. I'm your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy. Regular listeners of a podcast will recall our previous episodes where we spoke with Michael, Patricia, and Scott. They spent different lengths of time at McLaren Hall, but all had memories of neglect and abuse from the staff there. Our series on McLaren Hall has brought out all kinds of reactions from those who were there themselves and those who empathize with the victims. Since hearing our interviews with Michael, Patricia, and Scott, many others have come forward eager to share their experiences of what it was like to live at McLaren Hall. Others have expressed their sorrow and empathy for the survivors through comments on Facebook, podcast sites, our website, and by emailing us directly. You don't need to have lived at McLaren Hall yourself or anywhere similar to imagine the fear and the pain those children faced on a daily basis. To empathize with their stories, you just need to be human. We're not the only ones interested in McLaren Hall. Based on the Michael Connolly novels, the Amazon Prime series Bosch features a main character who spent time at McLaren Hall as a child. Actually, the whole arc of the story is around McLaren Hall. Our interest in McLaren Hall and the abuse allegedly suffered by children there and its centers like it led us to Mary Alice Ashbrook. Mary Alice arrived at McLaren Hall in Almonte, California at age 8 in 1968. Her stay at McLaren Hall was supposedly for her own good. Mary Alice was different to most of the children who wound up in childcare centers like McLaren Hall in that she came from a more privileged background. Her grandfather was the president of the company that owned 20th Century before it became 20th Century Fox. Despite her background, Mary Alice would experience the same terrible circumstances as a result of the attitude of the staff there. As a result of the staff, management, and the way the system was set up to process the numbers rather than help the children. Mary Alice's time at McLaren Hall turned out to be a traumatic experience that would impact the rest of her life. Mary Alice suffered from her treatment at McLaren Hall and was left traumatized by the horror she experienced at the hands of her foster care once she left McLaren Hall. From her troubled childhood, Mary Alice went on to various successes and disappointments. Like anyone, she's made bad and good choices that would affect her life. But was she dealt a weak hand by the system? I think so, and I think she's not the only one. If anything I've learned over all these podcast series is how broken and messed up the child care system is. Even 
From one of your messages on Facebook, it sounded like your recollection of events and your experience at McLaren Hall was more of a recent thing. Is that right? You know, I, I kept them under the carpet for years. And um, I guess, you know, there's an old saying, God will give you, won't give you more than you can handle. And so I'm just at a point in life where um, I can be at peace with it, look at the experience and see how it strengthened me. You know, a lot of people, I'm sure it debilitated their lives. Whereas for me, it only made me stronger. And roughly what age were you when you found yourself at McLaren Hall? I was eight. Okay. And I was there for about a year. Okay. And what year was it that you arrived there? 1968. My parents were divorced, and so it was just my mom and I. And my mother was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And, and then back in those days, they really didn't know how to treat drug addicts. And she had overdosed. So they sent her to Camarillo, which is a very famous mental hospital here in California. Mm -hmm. And because I had nowhere to go, they sent me to McLaren. The state mental hospital in California named, and I'm probably getting this wrong, Camarillo, opened its doors in 1936 and became a leader in developing treatments, schizophrenia, and other conditions previously thought to be untreatable. The hospital also treated those with alcoholism. The famous jazz musician Charlie Parker stayed there for six months, which inspired his track, Relaxin' at Camarillo. I see. There really, there weren't foster homes, you know, individual foster homes per se, set up. They just you know, ship kids off. But uh, the kids in McLaren, because there was like 4,000 kids when I was there. Wow, that is a lot. And, and they were, you know, they were a mixture. They were, they were uh, uh, delinquent kids. They were mentally challenged kids, handicapped kids, and then normal kids like me who just had no place to go. I see. Did your mother ever speak with you about what what might have driven her to to alcohol? You know, her thing, it wasn't really alcohol. It, it was pills. And, it, and she didn't even really like pot. It was pills. Um, she was a very intelligent person. She had a very high IQ. She could go into a country and pick up the language within a half hour. Um, I think what what happened because her life dramatically changed from living this lifestyle, from being around the motion picture industry to basically being confined to an apartment with a little girl. I think she was trying to shut her mind off. I see. Okay. And I think doctors in those days from what, because I got into the Freud theory researching it. They just prescribed Thorazine like it was candy. Mary Alice's mother came from a relatively affluent background, so the change in lifestyle, surroundings, social, school, and home life would be monumental for them both. In fact, Mary Alice's mom was a close friend of the Hollywood megastar Joan Crawford, who herself is the focus of attention in her adopted daughter's memoir, Mommy Dearest. In it, Christina Crawford wrote about the difficult relationship she had with her adoptive mother struggling with A-list Hollywood stardom. The book was later made into a famous film of the same name, with Faye Dunaway as the lead role. You mentioned that you were raised in a, um, I suppose, in a, in a Hollywood kind of environment. You've mentioned before that your mom's best friend, your your mother's best friend, was Joan Crawford. How is both Joan Crawford and Jane Russell, and Jane my Russell. mom's good friends? Um, and I did live with Joan Crawford for a while. I. 
comparatively speaking, I think McLaren Hall was a little calmer than her house. Mm -hmm. Because John Crawford was just very mentally ill. Do you think living the Hollywoods in that kind of Hollywood bubble, did that affect events with your mom and your relationship with your father? And did that have an impact there? I think I, I, I think it did. There was confusion as a child. You know, you go from living the lap of luxury mm -hmm. to nothing. Um, and back in those days, fathers didn't have any rights. Um, my dad was uh, a sound man in the industry, so he was on location a lot. And so my mother had to put my two brothers up for adoption. She felt that she could handle me. Okay, so they were taken away, presumably, when you were sent to McLaren Hall. Well, no, mom, mom put them up for adoption. My dad was on uh, location in Mexico, so when he came back, his sons were gone. I grew up around, you know, the hippies, the peace, love, and and pot, <laughs> you know. So there was some confusion because I, I just didn't quite understand at a young age what was going on. And then to be shipped, because I lived in Santa Barbara, to be shipped down to L.A., that was quite a distance to go to McLaren Hall. Yeah. And my mother's father died, and that kind of, you know, crashed her world. She just fell apart. And I remember her going to AA meetings and coming home saying those people didn't understand me. And now I understand, because I'm 33 years sober, and I understand what she was saying at that time. Okay. Um, and in those days, you know, here especially, I don't know if it was just California institutions, but they uh, did a lot of electric shock therapy on people, on addicts and drug addicts. mentioned again in one of your messages to me um, that one of your first experiences at McLaren Hall was having to be tied up or restrained for a pelvic examination. Yeah. Obviously that that's probably one of the worst moments you recall from McLaren Hall. It was it was it was very confusing because I was sick I had a bad sore throat so they sent me to the infirmary and I and I I just remember crying to the doctor saying, I don't hurt down there, I have a sore throat. Did they give you any reason for having to examine you there? No. It was very. Uh, I think it was. I mean, my opinion of the people who ran the place—they were just very sick people, probably a lot of pedophiles. So I learned after that experience. I did learn. I just really kept to myself and I just started reading a lot of books and they did, they had us sleeping on the floor on mattresses, mattresses and I kept to myself. It, it, it was like, you know, it was like a prison and I just learned how to tune, to tune what was out or how to be the chameleon and not create any uh, attention to myself. Rather than being able to look at the adults in McLaren Hall for reassurance, the children at McLaren Hall learn to fear them and avoid coming to their attention. So did you make any friends while you were there? I did. Um, I remember their faces. I remember their first names. I don't remember last names. Uh, we did 
it was like the kids took care of the kids. So my age group, we were called pixies. We were the pixie group. We took care of the babies, the infants, the toddlers. And when I say take care of them, you know, we changed their diapers, we fed them, we we were the, the nannies. It's a very sharp learning curve, I suppose, for you, um, being at eight years old, suddenly changing diapers. Yeah. Okay. I mean, are there any more? Can you remember any, any positive memories from McLaren Hall? I really can't. I, I remember... Of course, you know, being eight, I was small, you know, being outside, there were big walls, big fences, big lights. Um, you know, you couldn't see the street. Of course, it was a big facility within itself. I think it was on 10 acres. Did you go on any trips or anything like that? Were you let out of the facility? I went out once and that was to a, a hearing in court where uh, I was finally released. Uh, my mother had gone through treatment for a year and she proved to the court she could take care of me. So I had to go through that, the process of the courts and then she regained custody of me uh, for about four more years. And then I was placed back into foster care at 13. They had a... Uh, the welfare system had found out that she had cancer and she was in the hospital and I was home alone. And when they found out I was home alone, they put me back into foster care. We sat beneath a tree who wept in shades of Spring devolved her speech. The blossoms So living at McLeod Hall didn't work out. It was just a bad experience all around for you. It was, Chris, it was, it was like in the winter, it was cold. It was concrete floor. It was dreary. It smelled of feces and pee and vomit. Um... And then the summer, it was hot and sweltering, smelling of feces peeing. There was no proper nutrition. They just gave out cheese sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly three times a day. The conditions that Mary Alice and other children like her lived in McLaren Hall, combined with the hardened attitudes towards the children from staff, meant that this place was the only home available to them, and it felt more like a prison. These children were made to feel that life in McLaren Hall must be punishment or something terrible they have done. They wondered, why else were they being so treated badly, and why no one would help them when they cried? It must be because they did something terrible, and just nobody will tell them what they did. Was there any kind of, well, mental stimulation did they try to teach you anything? No, not at that time. Eventually they put in schools, but not when I was there. There was a little library, and that's when I became a book addict, which today I have a hard time sitting down reading a book, and I think it's because of that time period. Is there anything in your life now that you can trace back to McLeod Hall, like a positive habit or anything like that? anything at all? Well, um, to be candid with you, when I was 26, I voluntarily checked myself into an institution. It's called Los Encinas, which was, it still is kind of a mental hospital to the stars. W.C. Fields died there. A lot of famous people went through. And I electively went through electric shock therapy, hoping to squash all these memories. It didn't. Los Asinias, spelt L-A-S, capital E-N-C-I-N-A-S, is a recovery center in Pasadena, California for patients requiring hospital-based 
inpatient psychiatric care. I know that McLaren Hall gave me compassion for others. You know, I would give my shirt off my back for a homeless person. And it also gave me sympathy for other foster children. I go to I go to laundry at a laundromat and every Sunday they bring this big van load of kids to do their laundry. And last week I asked one of the kids, I said, Are you guys in a recovery home? He said, No, we're in a foster home. And I just broke down crying like a baby. Because I could see the pain in their eyes, the feeling of not being wanted and being lost. one of the things that has made you kind of look back at your time on at McLaren Hall? Yeah. And presumably during this whole time, your father was still working as a sound mixer? He was, but he had remarried a woman who had three children and she promised him that he could have his children. Well, once they got married, the story changed. Oh. Yeah. I see. Okay. Did he try to get in, did you try to get in touch with your father during that time? He would come see me periodically. Um, when I was placed into foster care again at 13, there was another court hearing. And I remember saying to the judge, my father was there. I, I remember saying to the judge, I want to make sure my father has to pay for me. I don't want the state of California. And he said, no, your father's going to have to pay support for you. Um, but then when they they placed me into a private foster care home, then I became the sex toy for that foster father. Mary Alice was placed in the care of individuals, first at McLaren Hall, and then with a foster family who were not working towards the best interests of the children in their charge. Having faced psychological abuse in McLaren Hall, Mary Alice, aged just 13, faced horrific sexual abuse in the home of her foster family that was supposed to look after her. The fact that these individuals were allowed to continue as foster parents despite red flags being raised by the children has no words. Horrific. Once again, the system failed, and it failed a 13-year-old girl. I was 13. Yeah. And and that was full bone sex act for about a year. So I I I would live with them for a year and I ran away. This was Santa Barbara and, and dad lived in LA. I ran away and I made it to my dad's house. Um I ended up living with him for a couple months, and then I was placed into a foster home in L.A. That was normal. It was a Mormon family. And I just, I worked hard, and I eventually had myself emancipated at 16. I proved to the courts I could take care of myself. So I became my own guardian at 16. Okay, so 13, you were placed in foster care and sexually abused. How do you think that has had an impact on your life subsequently? When I turned 30, I went and I sat down with that, that husband and wife because she walked in. He was in my bedroom just sitting there, like in the middle of the night, talking to me. And she walked in. I think she had figured out what was going on. 
but she she always put the blame on me. And so when I was 30, I went up there and I demanded a meeting and I said to her, I said, how could you hold a 13-year-old girl, innocent girl, accountable for this? I didn't even kiss a boy or hold a boy's hand before I walked into your home. And then I looked at the man and I said, how dare you? Now he was, he was in uh, Alzheimer's state, so he really didn't remember. And the conversation more was with of her. To this day, her and I are friends. We made peace. I forgave because I, I knew carrying around resentments, that's what kept me getting loaded and drunk. I had to learn how to forgive and let go. So seeing them gave you a sense of closure on that, or, or is it something? Is it still something that? Yeah, it, it gave me it gave me closure. Okay. You know, I'm I'm friends with their with their children on Facebook. It's interesting today. Um, the kids remember me there. They haven't asked me why did I leave, and if they ever do, I would say you know it was just different issues. I would never ever belittle their father. treated as an eight-year-old or nine-year-old in McLaren Hall, did that, um, did that have an impact on how you were treated at the foster family's home? I mean, did you, did you feel at the age of 13 that maybe you had no choice or that you had no control? Yeah, you're right. That's exactly how I felt. It was kind of like a feeling, well, I have to give in this a survival. Okay, I see. Okay, and I suppose... But then also at that age, it was very confusing because it was the father fatherly love that I never experienced. So there was some kind of confusion. I see now, I, I mean, at the time, I, I think I was just very quiet and submissive after McLaren. Okay, so the foster father... He he wasn't. Well, when you were thirteen, he wasn't just sexually abusive. He, he was actually caring in his own way as well. Very. He he had taken me. He had four children of his own. They had four children. We all went on a motorhome trip in the summer. We went up to Alaska. But he was abusing me on that trip. But he he was he had normal signs of what a father should be to towards his other children after i left there i found out that he had what he had done to me he had done to the girl that was there prior to me um and after i left the court system shut them down my my father did contact the uh, court system about it and they got involved and shut them down Mary Alice found herself struggling with the events she'd experienced. For a time, she did find some release from the past through drug use. This would, however, lead her to her addiction of cocaine. Do you remember when you first tried cocaine or any drugs? I was 20. 
I was 20. And what cocaine did for me was it, it focused me. See, now I, I know today because I have uh, ADD, attention deficit disorder. So it probably made me normal. And do you think your cocaine use, I mean, I know it's difficult to say specifically, um, one can imagine that part of it stems from the troubled childhood and teen years. That and being a woman and being in Hollywood, it it took me into places, and I was underage, it took me into places where I shouldn't have been. Um, there was a, a, there's a bar, it's called the Rainbow, Rainbow Room in Hollywood. Um, very famous right there by the Roxy. And I ended up partying with Led Zeppelin one night upstairs in the private quarters. Yeah. I, I had no fear when people would card me, I'd say, you're full of shit. And I just walk in. I, I was very confident. And then the cocaine really made me confident. What do you think might be one of the most ill-advised things that you did? Uh, I think the drugs. Most definitely, yeah. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Eventually, Mary Alice sought hope to battle her addiction. At the time, the only support group that was applied to her situation, and that of many other drug users, was Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, so you say that when your mom was in AA, that she, she didn't feel like she was understood by the people there. And you say that you have, that you had a similar experience when you were in AA. Well, when when I first got sober, I was young in my 20s. Uh, I was going to AA. My drug of choice was cocaine. And they would not let us cocaine addicts talk. So a bunch of us started Cocaine Anonymous on Paramount Studios lot because we couldn't go to meetings you know there was no support group and now cocaine anonymous is going to be 34 years old this year so you're one of the founding members of cocaine anonymous and it started off on the paramount lot that's amazing that's that's a whole other story it it really is a lot of uh blood sweat and tears laid up at you know uh, a bunch of addicts trying to form a nonprofit organization. It was very comical. <laughs> so, how old were you when when you started Cocaine Anonymous at Paramount? Twenty three. It was basically a bunch of camera guys, sound guys, and a couple actors who started the meetings. And then I got involved in the business side of it, the accounting side, setting up the bylaws. Uh, you know, by then we had developed the conference where we had delegates, and we 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 did everything like AA did it, with their permission. Not satisfied with the support available to drug addicts at the time, Mary Ellis took the initiative and got involved with forming the first ever Cocaine Anonymous group in the lot at Paramount Studios. 
presumably this group was made up of the people who work in Hollywood, like script editors, sound mixers, producers, that sort of thing. When I, uh, when I got sober and I'm working for this big company, I uh, was asked to speak on a, a talk show because they wanted to know how I was able to maintain my job and not lose anything and still do cocaine. Well, they had, what they did, they called in to the office of Cocaine Anonymous looking for speakers. I ended up doing uh, uh, CNN, Sonia Live, and then a morning show with Tom Snyder. I only, I had less than a year of sobriety, and I thought I was all that. <laughs> and I went on this, this talk show, this new lady that was out by the name of Oprah. And everybody at work had their little TVs out watching. And the president of the company came up to me and goes, Mary Alice, I had no idea. I had no idea you were doing that. Uh, before it was reselling pages and mobile phones, were, were, were you in any other business, businesses? I remember you saying from in one of your posts, Oh yeah, I was. I was always. I always had a good job. I was uh, working for Rubbermaid. Um, I was uh, assistant to the vice president of operations. I always. I. I had a knack. When I was seventeen, I moved to New York, and I uh, went and I worked for Tiffany in the accounting department. I told them I was a bookkeeper. I didn't know anything about bookkeeping, Chris. I sat there for two days and I studied the books. And luckily, I was able, you know, I picked it up. It was a good little job. Um, so then when I came back to California, I, I worked in manufacturing. I was always placed by an employment agency. The employer always <clears throat> paid money to hire me. So I was very fortunate. Now, here's the kicker. I've had some really good jobs. I really didn't graduate high school because I, at 16, I had to take myself out of school. My first job, I was pumping gas, working on cars. As a result of her childhood experiences, Mary Alice sought to please everybody around her. On one hand, this resulted in a fantastic work ethic, which carried bright on through her entire career. However, on the other hand, her personal life led to make some rather bad choices and would have a negative effect in the business she was building up with her father. After all this, in your, in your 20s, you set up a business with your father. So presumably by then, you'd had some closure with him as well. You were able to reconcile? You know, he died three years ago today, and I I told him, and, and there was a time and period where my husband, now my second husband, we've been married 24 years, we moved up to Idaho to be near him in his later years. My dad finally found the Mormon church when I was about 11, and that dramatically changed him. That's all I heard was the Mormon stuff. And eventually I became Mormon. Um, even though I, I, I don't believe at all. Um, but it, it, it gave my dad and I something in common. I guess I desperately try to make a relationship that should have been, that never was. And it really never was, Chris. I mean... He just didn't have the ability to uh, to be a parent. I think he was probably abused. You know, we're talking different, the, the generation of the depression. You say you entered a facility to have electroshock therapy when you were 26. Presumably that was one of the memories as well that you were trying to block out. The squash, yeah. And part of that also, I married a Beverly Hills attorney, and he he got 
Now, by this time, I'm in my 20s, and I'm, I'm very successful in what I do in, in work. I went into business with my father. We were the first Motorola resellers in California. We were the first ones doing cell phones and pagers as a result of the Olympics. So my first husband kind of saw that as an opportunity to take the company I started seeing things happening with Dad's company. I mind you, I've been with Rubbermaid eight years, and I—that's when I talked to my dad. I said, "Listen, I need to quit my job and come work for the company." And then it took me about a year to go through an audit and find how my husband was embezzling money. He was a successful attorney, but he was getting ready to be. Uh, disbarred for a period of time because he had problems with stealing his clients money that should have been a, a big flag to me but it wasn't um you know he he put me back into the beverly hills lifestyle it was just all a smoke shield it was an illusion he was painting because he eventually ended up taking us down for a couple million dollars and we had to sell the business. You mentioned that you had an accident 20 years ago. Yeah, I, uh, I was working for these developers who basically developed the area where the Kardashians live. Okay. And we were having a, a lunch and walking out to the car in a walkway. They had these miniature telephone poles that were hanging off the roof to make it look like an adobe-style Mexican restaurant. And I walked right into the pole. I had my head turned, talking to a co-worker, and I walked right into it. So every disc in my neck tweaked. I've had 16 surgeries in my neck. My back, they want to do, but because I've had such nightmares with the neck, I won't let them touch the back. So fortunately, I was a hard worker, paid into the system um, where I do get a, a pretty decent disability income for the last 20 years. Possibly as a result of her childhood experiences, Mary Alice has never been able to sit on her hands. Even as setbacks, such as her embezzling husband and her accident, she refused to be knocked down. While less active, Mary Alice still lives a happy and fulfilling life. Although she still feels anger and frustration at the way she and the other children like her were treated, when they most need help and support from childcare services, she has come to make some peace with that. But, you know, my life now is just basically taking care of two dogs. Um, my husband, he works. He, he leaves early. Unfortunately, my body, the best I can do is take these dogs out for walks every few hours. Um, my body has taken its toll. The malnutrition I went through at McLaren has taken its toll in, it, in my uh, teeth decay to immune system, uh, it, it, it blows me away, you know, uh, it just, it, and it breaks my heart because, because the United States at that time and period had a lot of money, there was a lot of money available to proper care for children, it wasn't done. You know, they instituted the California lottery in a a portion of it was supposed to go to schools and helping children. Never has. You know, uh, I would really, I wish I had the energy in it to investigate where, where does this money go? You know, why aren't these children being taken care of? Why do we pay heavy tax that's supposed to take care of them? Where is it going? Are there any improvements to the system, to the foster care system in the U.S. that you might, that you might like to put forward? There, there definitely is. You know, there, 
there are more foster homes where children are placed in actual family homes that are monitored. It, it, the system is overloaded, but there are uh, protection guidelines and laws now that protect the child from sexual abuse. Um, it still happens, unfortunately. Um, but that's, I think, part of the world in itself, you know, where there's good, there's evil. But I, I you know, they have closed these institutions. There aren't any more institutions like McLaren Hall anymore. Okay. And do you, do you speak to your family at all about the time at McLaren Hall or your time in foster care, their time? In... I have, I, I, I've talked to my husband, John, about it often. And he, he recognizes that I guess I have some behavior. Um, I, I'm a, I'm kind of a little, I'm not a hoarder hoarder, but I have, I always have a bag packed. It's really weird. And, and that's from going back in the day where you didn't know where you were going to be. Right. So you always have like an overnight bag packed, ready to go? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Despite all the trials she's overcome in her life, Mary Alice is reluctant to describe herself as an inspiration to others. Instead, she prefers to reflect upon her experiences and point out what others may have learned from them. was just never giving up on myself. I uh, I really, I, I just kept telling myself, you know, I wasn't the pretty girl. So I had to put an extra effort out there. The way I got my job at Rubbermaid is I showed up every day and sat in their lobby for a week until they hired me. Um, it, it was self-confidence. It was... Uh, I remember hearing as a young child, act as if, act as if, do it until you become it. If you want to become a rock star, then sing your heart out every day until you become that rock star. If you want to be that fisherman, then get that pole out in the pond every day and fish. It's not going to happen by sitting. It's definitely, this day and age, it's not going to happen by sitting behind a computer. Get out there and enjoy life. And just put all your confidence, just as some a child puts their confidence today into their little iPad, you need to put that confidence in you. Because the brain is a beautiful organ. It's a, if we just let go I think by talking to people and you let go of the deep, dark secrets, you can move on. McLaren Hall was supposed to be a short-term shelter, while more suitable long-term accommodation was found for these children. Instead, it became a warehouse for children as tens of thousands of minors passed through McLaren Hall gates over six decades. The center was finally shut down in 2003 with a class action lawsuit being brought on by former residents. It's a story that Los Angeles wants to bury, but fails because the victims refuse to be silenced. Okay. Do you think that the system has changed much since the time that you were there? I think so, most definitely. It's more protective of the child, at least from what I'm seeing here in California. Do you think now more is being done since most people people are more open about telling their story and admitting, standing up and saying, I was abused in this way or that way? I think a lot of that's coming from because we are a, we've become a 12-step self-help environment especially here in California there 
the most meetings, AA, NACA, all the A's are here in California. I think um, society, even if you see on Facebook people posting affirmations, people are going in that direction. Unfortunately, though, because of the way our healthcare system works, there still are a lot of sick children out there that need psychiatric care. Seeing the children at the laundromat every Sunday, is there any advice that you want to give to them sometimes when you look down at them? And I, you know, I, I have often thought that I'd like to get involved somehow um, as a mentor. You know, the only thing I can encourage is if to, to hang on to a, a higher power greater than yourself. If you don't believe in God, you know, take the acronym G-O-D is good orderly direction. All I would say, even to a child, if, if you don't trust a person, then trust this teddy bear. Because this teddy bear will love you unconditionally. And love this teddy bear till you love yourself. Because it's about loving yourself. But I, I, I really, what I, I guess what I want to say is I, I would seek out any kind of uh, support groups, uh, mental health care that they can get. It's important to have a confidence, somebody they can talk to. Um, it really is. I just would encourage, you know, I see society uh, changing where they're offering more mental health outlets for kids, even support groups. There's adult children of alcoholics. It's a good support group. Um, but kids just need to talk about it because we are as sick as our secrets. Our secrets will kill us. Mary Alice is a prime example of how the childcare system has failed many of the children it should have been protecting. But Claren Hall was a place that stabbed fear into the hearts of the children who stayed there. Inadequate checks meant Mary Alice went to a foster home where she was sexually abused from the age of 13 and throughout her time there. As an adult, Mary Alice succumbed to drug use and discovered her husband was embezzling money from the business she had built up with her father. Later working in real estate, she had an accident that shattered her life once more. Despite all these terrible things that have happened to Mary Alice, has not stopped believing in herself and striving for what she wants and needs from life. She went on to have great success in business, helped start the first ever Cocaine Anonymous group in California, and is happily married to her second husband. Mary Alice continues to prove to all of us that by maintaining a positive attitude, some great experiences and achievements can come despite the terrible things that others can do to us along the way. This is Carla Stevens Tolstoy, your host for Stand Up, Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to talking about issues that usually get swept under the rug. I want to thank all the McLaren Hall survivors that I've been honored to have on this podcast. And I want to do a shout out to other kids that have had to suffer through the hands of a broken system. The foster care system, child services in both the USA and in Canada are in desperate need of repair. And for those of us, myself, that were lucky enough to grow up in a loving family. I don't know if it's luck or why did I get to have that advantage, but I do know that I want it to be an even playing field and do what I can do so that all kids get off to a good start in life. And that regardless of perhaps your upbringing 
your color, your sexual orientation. None of that should matter. We should be able to start off equal on some footing and all get an equal chance for success. So thanks for listening. And this is Stand Up, Speak Up, brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. Wearable Therapy by Toki is a clothing company dedicated to spreading awareness about social issues through fashion. Our inspiring designs get the conversation started about issues like human trafficking, bullying, homelessness, mental illness, and more. Check out our products at www.wearable-therapy-toki.com. Be sure to check out our wearable therapy shop. Remember that sales from the shop help us fund our reporting and creation of podcasts just like this one. While you're there, why not check out our 3,000 Acts of Kindness mission? At the time of uploading this podcast, we were fast approaching 500 acts. What is that all about? Well, in collaboration with Stand Up Speak Up, Wearable Therapy has dedicated itself to committing 3,000 acts of kindness by 2020. These acts will be made up of new and creative ways of spreading awareness about important issues that are ignored by other areas of the media. when we play outside. 
We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.